1: Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, and we really do mean simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like monsters, snot and monkeys. And
2: we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of tears is in fact all about the French Revolution Or that the history of fleas... Ooh, even speaking about them is making me itch. The history of fleas is all about atrocities during World
1: War II. The man sitting opposite me who will help pilot us through this wonderful historical world, looking out the windows as we fly past, is one of the country's leading professors of history. It's James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam. And
2: I love thinking of myself as a historical airline pilot, piling at us through the skies, the clouds of history. But the man sitting opposite me is the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr Sam Willis. Are you well on
1: this sunny day, Sam? Very well. Slightly sunburnt, but otherwise very well. Uh, This is another episode in our special homeschooling series for kids. And in each episode, what we do is we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history and we're going to prove that it does and today we are doing the history of broken promises you've been wanting to do this for ages haven't you James okay. fact, I remember uh, you promised to do it weeks ago and um, now look where we are now you've another broken promise no no we're, we're doing it so I, I wonder if I'm, I'm good to my word but you know that's what it's all
2: about it is about honesty morality integrity the strength of somebody's word in other words in other words If you say that you are going to do something, you follow through. But this is actually the opposite of that. It's people promising to do things and then not going through. So, for example, we can think about this in terms of the US elections of the 20th century. US presidents promising to do certain things, but sometimes those promises were unfulfilled. Take, for example, Richard Nixon in 1968, claimed to have a secret plan to end the war, by which he meant the Vietnam War, and promised to find a way to peace with honour in Vietnam. But some five or six years later, America was only just withdrawing from the conflict a little more than a year before Nixon resigned. Or Lyndon B. Johnson, who promised in 1964... We are not about to send American boys nine or ten thousands away, nine or ten thousand miles away from home to do what Asian boys ought to be doing for themselves. And it's during his presidency that the US, the United States, entered the Vietnam War. So it's about not keeping your promises.
1: There, I just realised there are lots of examples in the Crusades, if any of you are studying the Crusades. It's, um, it's a period of history and a topic which is absolutely loaded with promises because you have um, the fact that the Crusaders themselves were, were, were promised absolution from sin and they were promised eternal glory and then when the campaigns actually get going there's a huge amount of um, underhand dealings and broken promises as the Crusaders go through the Holy Land and it really moves on to the um, the first crusade, the second, the third, the fourth crusades. It's absolutely fundamental to it. It's a really important theme. Or uh, promissory cases
2: in the 16th and 17th century where women who were promised marriage by a man, if he did not follow through with his intention to marry her, could take them to court over it. Isn't that Mm. extraordinary?
1: That is extraordinary. like? Mean, but today we're doing broken promises, particularly in relation to the gunpowder plot, which is so fundamental to the way that the plot unfurled. So what we're going to do here is look particularly at James the I, because he is the one who made these promises and then broke them. What you need to know is that just before ascending the throne, James... Um, assures someone called Henry Percy, he's the Earl of Northumberland, a very important nobleman, both under uh, James's predecessor Elizabeth I and also during his reign. He promises that he would not persecute any Catholics that will be quiet and give but an outward obedience to the law. And that statement proved to be a massive, hugely broken promise. And he soon reinforced strict penalties against Catholics. And that broken promise would lead, amongst other things, to the gunpowder plot. So what is going on here? Well, it's all to do with the reformation of the 16th century and conflict between Protestants and Catholics. Protestants across Europe were demanding reform of the doctrine and government of the Roman Catholic Church. They were constantly questioning the Roman Catholics' traditional teachings. And really importantly, they rejected the Pope's authority. Some of Europe's rulers and the Catholic Church tried to suppress this new way of thinking. They tried to suppress Protestantism. But the Protestants found their own support among certain kings and princes of Europe. And this meant that for from the last 30 years of the 16th century, Europe was consumed with almost constant bitter religious wars. So we've got Europe divided by this issue. And it really affected The way that people lived and experienced their lives, depended on where you lived and what you believed. And in the 16th century, many people found themselves on the wrong side of the religious divide. They found themselves living in places which no longer followed the religion that they believed in. So you've got Protestants living in Catholic countries and Catholics living in Protestant countries. And for those people, both of them could be not only seen as heretics in religious terms, but even allied with foreign powers. It became immensely dangerous. There were a number of different reactions to this problem. And in many places, these religious minorities were persecuted. Some of these communities pledged loyalty to their government whilst peacefully exercising their own religion, but others defiantly, openly justified violent protest. And it's worth thinking about how this was all experienced in England, because only then can you understand how and why this promise that James I made was so important and why it was broken. Henry VIII breaks from the Roman Catholic Church in the 1530s and he makes himself Supreme Head of the Church of England. And then his son, Edward VI, carries on with Protestantism and it becomes strongly embedded with the English Church during his reign. After Edward's death, it chops, it changes because his sister, Mary I, becomes queen and she reimposes Catholicism. Um, That attempt to do so is then thwarted by her own death. And after Mary's death, her half sister, Elizabeth I, she becomes queen and she is a Protestant. And she builds up the uh, power of England to one of the most powerful Protestant Uh, countries in Europe. During Elizabeth's reign, the government become increasingly worried about what the Catholic minority in England are up to, what they're doing, and a number of Catholic priests, uh, 100, were executed during her reign.
0: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. And they partner with factories that prioritise safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
1: So what we've got here is a very powerful England under Protestant Elizabeth I. And you've got a number of immensely powerful Catholic powers in Europe. And one of the main areas of conflict here is between Catholic Spain and Protestant England. And it wasn't until after Elizabeth's death, this is now during the reign of James I, that they actually achieved peace. James is a very interesting character because he is the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who was a Catholic, though he himself was a Protestant. Nonetheless, he was expected to treat Catholics better than Elizabeth had. So Catholics are living in a great deal of hope that their lives are going to change under James. Something else also happens. His wife, Anne of Denmark, she was a Protestant, but at some point in her life, she converts to Catholicism. So Catholics think they've really got an ally here with James because his wife is a Catholic. And James does a remarkable thing by managing to create a peace between England and Spain, a peace that was signed in Somerset House in London in 1604. So we've got more evidence here of him wanting to be a peacemaker, wanting to... to peace between Protestant England and Catholic Spain. And all of this encouraged Catholics to believe that he would look fondly on them. Let's go back to that quote. Remember, he promised that any Catholics that will be quiet and give but an outward obedience to the law, he would not persecute Catholics who did that. However, things don't work out as James intended. He becomes he comes under massive pressure from the House of Commons, and the House of Commons are very strongly anti-Catholic. And he also becomes increasingly anti-Catholic himself, as he uncovers a number of plots against his reign, uh, particularly the by plot of 1603, which was a conspiracy, a Catholic conspiracy, to kidnap the King. And so all of this brings us up to the gunpowder plot. So James has promised to protect Catholics, to allow them to carry on, but it doesn't quite work out as he promised.
2: No, and this James, James Daybell, has promised that he will deliver an explanation <laughs> of what happened during the gunpowder plot. Now, the situation, as Sam said, is that King James the Sixth of Scotland and First of England had said in a sort of vague way that he would tolerate Catholics. This is not what happened. And what we see is various things brought in that sees Catholics being imprisoned, and find. And very importantly, because Catholic Mass relies upon a priest to be present, it's one of the big differences between Catholicism and Protestantism, and Catholic priests were sent away, so they were outlawed. And so Catholics who wanted Mass weren't able to get it. And of course, because of this, they are deeply concerned and deeply disappointed by the failure. Of James I to treat them fairly and in particular there are a group of young Catholic gentlemen from the Midlands who are very disgruntled indeed and they start plotting and they decide to take action and at the centre of this group is a man called Robert Catesby. He's the leader behind the plot and he is a very charismatic, influential, gregarious, gregarious, Warwickshire gentleman. And behind his leadership, or what emerged from his leadership, were two distinct elements. Firstly, there were plans that emerged in May 1604 to blow up the king together with the House of Lords and the House of Commons during the ceremonial opening of Parliament. And because of links that a fellow plotter, Thomas Percy, had to the very powerful Earl of Northumberland, who himself would sit in the House of Lords, they were able, these conspirators to get access to Parliament. Now, the second part of their plot was that after everything was blown up, the plotters hoped that they would gather together Catholic gentlemen living in the Midlands, that they would seize Princess Elizabeth, who was the only one of King James's children who would not be at the ceremony and then they would work out what would happen next but that was never really planned. But basically you get rid of the king, you kidnap his daughter so she can't be on the throne instead and you sort something out that is going to suit Catholics. Now this gets quite complicated now so listen very carefully. There are a group of Catholic priests, including the head of the Jesuit mission to England, Henry Garnet, who had some knowledge of this plot that was going to be called the Gunpowder Plot, and they tried to discourage it. Garnet and his fellow priests didn't, however, although they knew it, they didn't pass this message on to the government. Now, what happens then is that in order to move towards a position where you can blow up the Houses of Parliament. They did two things. First of all they started by renting a house on one side of the House of Lords and what they thought that they would do was they would dig a tunnel so that they could plant gunpowder in it. However as you could imagine digging a tunnel in the middle of London was a very difficult task and it failed. So instead in March 1604 they got to rent a or a cellar that was directly underneath the House of Lords. And this was where they were going to pack the 36 barrels of gunpowder under the watchful eye of Guy Fawkes, who you probably all know about from the 5th of November celebrations. And Sam's going to tell us a little bit more about that in a bit. The problem for the plotters, though, is that Parliament receives a tip-off there is a letter that is sent to a Catholic nobleman, one Lord Monteagle, who would be attending the opening of Parliament on the 5th of November. And it's supposed to have been sent to him by a close family member. And the letter survives in the National Archives in Kew. And it says, my Lord, I would advise you as you tender your life to devise some excuse to shift your attendance at this Parliament, for God and man hath concurred to punish the wickedness of this time. Though there be no appearance of any stir yet, I say they shall receive a terrible blow this Parliament, and yet they shall not see who hurts them. It was an anonymous letter, it wasn't signed, but Lord Monteagle received the letter at his house in Hoxton, in North London on the 26th of October 1605, and he immediately passed it to Robert Cecil, the Earl of Salisbury, who was one of the king's most preeminent ministers. It isn't known, as I said, who wrote the letter, but people think that it was Francis Tresham, Monteagle's brother-in-law. Now, another conspirator, Thomas Winter, was well known in Monteagle's household, but he claimed that the letter was sent by someone else linked to the government and it may even have been Cecil himself. However the conspirators got to know about this through one of Monteagle's servants and they still didn't abandon their plans but decided to go ahead and the government appeared rather dubious about this letter and didn't quite believe it at first. They couldn't quite believe that people were going to do this act. But on the evening of the 4th of November, a royal official, Sir Thomas Nivett and Edward Doubleday, found Guy Fawkes, who was using an alias at the time, an alias known as John Johnson, and he found him and his gunpowder. And we know about this because of an entry in a journal of the House of Commons. Um, And it reads, This last night the Upper House of Parliament was searched by Sir Thomas Nevitt and one Johnson, master to Mr Thomas Percy, was there apprehended who had placed 36 barrels of gunpowder in the vault under the house with the purpose to blow King and the whole company when they should assemble. Afterwards, diverse other gentlemen were discovered to be of the plot. Now, on the morning of the 5th of November when they realised the plot had been discovered, most of the other conspirators fled to the Midlands. They ran away. The government issues a series of proclamations ordering their arrest, and very slowly, the uprising melts away. In London, there is a brief shootout, which sees Thomas Percy, Christopher and Jack Wright, and Catesby, remember the leader, all of them are killed. Others, including Thomas Winter and Ambrose Rookwood were captured and brought to London, and others over the next few days were arrested and were seized under suspicion of involvement. On the 9th of November, Parliament assembled to hear a speech from the King describing what was then known about the plot. And This speech is later published as a pamphlet at the end of November, which is, a, which is titled The King's Book. Now, Guy Fawkes is captured in the basement of the House of Lords. He is put on trial and he is executed. Now, Sam is going to tell us a little more about what we know about Guy
1: Fawkes. Guy Fawkes is a fascinating person and he's one of the... um, I'm quite selective on who I'd like to meet from history, James, but I think I'd quite like to meet Guy Fawkes. (laughs) Hmm. I'm going to say that now. (laughs) A conspirator. A conspirator. So this guy, he this guy, this chap, he was born in 1570. Um, so he lived a lot of his life during the reign of Elizabeth I, even though he's most famous for his crimes during the reign of James I. His father, he was born into a Protestant family, that's what you need to remember. And one of the key things about Guy is that he's he's a convert. He's known for his religious zeal, and he has become a Catholic from being a Protestant, and I think that's really important. He seems to be constantly trying to prove people how how devout he is, how committed he is to the cause. He's brought up in York. We know that he went to St Peter's School, and then we know that he became a soldier, fighting for the Catholic Spanish against the Protestant Dutch. And it was there he gained a reputation for excellent technical knowledge and also for his courage and his bravery. One of his schoolmates, a guy called Oswald Tesimund, actually described him. He said he was pleasant of approach and cheerful of manner, opposed to quarrels and strife, loyal to his friends, but also that he was a man highly skilled in the matters of war. And the plotters were were looking for someone who wouldn't be as easily recognisable as them. And they settled on Guy Fawkes. They sent someone to the Netherlands in the spring of 1604 to talk to Fawkes and to tell him about the plan for the plot. He agrees to do it and then he comes home. Um... James has briefly described uh, what happened down in that basement when he was found with all of that gunpowder. He was pretending to be someone else. He was pretending to be John Johnson. And his explanations were initially accepted. But then people grew a bit suspicious. He was interrogated. The king actually authorised the use of torture. Uh, He is tortured on the rack but do bear in mind that torture was illegal in England at the time and he signs confessions which allow the investigators to to uh, round up other mem- other conspirators, other members of the plot. And when he was executed on the 27th of January 1606, he either fell or jumped from the gallows ladder. We don't know what, but he certainly died as a result of having a broken neck. And afterwards, he was quartered. He was chopped up into pieces. So there we are. That is the brief life of Guy Fawkes, his absolutely fascinating person. And it's interesting that if you look at the confessions that he wrote when he was under torture. Uh, Bear in mind that nowadays we don't believe that anything written under torture is actually worth worth the ink that it's written in. Um, But it's quite clear that he is not actually at the heart of the plot and he has only been allowed access to certain elements of the plot, to certain information which I think is really important, understanding his role within the entire plot. And have we got a task for them all, James? Well, we have, but before that,
2: if you have a look at his signature before and after his torture, you will see how badly he suffered because his handwriting, after he was put on the rack, is absolutely atrocious and it shows a man who has been completely broken and ruined. But indeed, we do have a task for you, as a very sensible task today, I'm afraid. (sighs) Now, this is to test whether you were listening carefully. So, take this down. We have a series of questions and we want you to write the answer. Now, first, who was the leader of the gunpowder plot? That's question one. Who was the leader of the gunpowder plot? Question two, why Were English Catholics unhappy? A little clue here is this whole episode is framed around the idea of broken promises. So why were English Catholics unhappy? Question three. Who was the military expert brought in to set up the barrels? So who was the military expert brought in to set up the barrels? A hint here, he was tortured and had dreadful handwriting afterwards. Question four, what were the plotters trying to blow up? Question four, what were the plotters trying to blow up? Question five, who was the relative who would have attended the opening of Parliament and who told Robert Cecil about the plot after he was warned not to attend? So who was the relative who would have attended the opening of parliament who told Robert Cecil about the plot after he was warned not to attend and question 5 this is a this is one which will require you to do some online research now what event in king james the and firsts own family history would have made him all too aware of the dangers of gunpowder plots so what event in King James the Sixth and First's family history would have made him all too aware of the dangers of gunpowder plots. Go back, a little hint. Go back and have a look at how his own father died. So there we are. Um, a very interesting uh, little task for you. Hope you're listening carefully. Quiz, James, a quiz.
1: I'm excited. It about It is. That a, it's a little quiz. We, we should. We should go away and, and do this. <laughs> I think we should put quizzes at the end of all of our homeschooling episodes. You've, come, you've struck on something excellent. Guys, I hope you enjoyed it. Do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com. Please find us on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. You can follow us. Come and make friends. We'd love to chat to every one of you. Um, best of luck with the quiz and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye, guys.